Gen Off Grid provides stations with reliable energy systems comprising of solar, lithium batteries and backup diesel, reducing current diesel usage by up to 90%. All systems are built and tested at our workshops in Broome, Caratha and Darwin, with proven performance in North Australian conditions, backed by a 10-year warranty, local support and remote monitoring. Visit their website to see systems in action on cattle stations as well as commercial, ecotourism and industrial projects. Learn more at genoffgrid.com. That's G-E-N-O-F-F-G-R-I-D.com. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. This episode is part two of our chat with David Pollock from Moline Station. Make sure you go and listen to part one first, otherwise you'll miss the context of this episode. In this episode, David discusses his thoughts on the dingoes versus wild dogs debate and why he has chosen to stop killing all dogs. So we've covered destocking, so that's to reduce grazing pressure. We've covered the nursery, uh, so that's to help assist um, in re- reintroducing uh, and supporting the propagation of plants that are, that are good for the ecosystem have value for grazing stock, um, and are currently not in either there at all or in the numbers that you want them to be there. Now, you also said before that, so with your grazing pressure, so obviously you've got your, your traditional, like your, your grazing animals for agriculture. So was sheep, now it's cattle, some places there's goats as well. But you also mentioned that, um, 60% of the grazing pressure comes from other animals, so your natives like kangaroos. Do you get wallabies in this part of the world? No. No, okay. So kangaroos, what else is eating your grasses out here? Is uh, it mainly roos? It's mainly roos. I mean, roos are a specific grass eater. Um, so they're, you know, they'll, they'll eat other things, but what they really want to eat is grass. I mean, I guess rabbits is, is another thing that we, we have. We'd love to get rid of the rabbits. There's not... You know, they're not, they've never really been sort of plague proportions. I think, I think a lot of the goannas eat a fair few rabbits. So, um, they've never been way out of proportion, but certainly kangaroo numbers were ridiculously inflated. Um, and, and, you know, for most of the time, you know, my family have had, but in fact, you know, ever since the 1940s, kangaroos have been, um, you know, in really high numbers. And so I suppose a part of that would be attributed to when people came and developed pastoral country, they were putting in permanent water points. So, so kangaroos had access to water 
and their numbers. Well, that's certainly the traditional line, but I think that that's a that's not the major. Are, thing. are we going to? Is it also the lack of when predators got taken out as well? Is that where you're going? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So they they had resources and they also so things to assist them in growing, but also the the predator influence, which is kind of yeah where I wanted to head now. Um, so I was just trying to build the picture for people listening along that. But, but people generally put forward that that as the reason. Like the reason we've got a lot of kangaroos now is because there's a lot more waters and that's not the reason. Okay. Which is a good point because yeah. a lot of people will say yeah, it's the, that is we, the reason. We've created these not- artificial environments. Well, in a way you haven't cre- created artificial environments that there are. Well, maybe maybe more so down in farming country. I guess we're growing crops or whatever and there's a lot more. Fe- I don't know. Um, but yes, it is an artificial environment when predators are taken out of the system. So I was going to ask you in, in terms of repairing the landscape, it's one thing to take the cattle or the sheep out. Um, it's another thing to try and, you know, to have this nursery and try and replant species and reintroduce them. But that can all, all that work can be undone pretty quickly if you just have a big mob or plague of kangaroos that come in and chew it all out. Mm. Um, so this is also, I suppose, where the discussion, um, well, not, not so much between you and me, but like your approach to managing this side of your grazing pressure is a little more, um, di- uh, diversive, not diversive. What's the word I'm thinking of? Divisive. divisive. Yeah, I was close. Um, and, and on some levels with some people, um, just plain polarizing. And that's your approach to, so yeah, I'll let you tell us about that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, the biggest problem we've always had out here is, is, is managing the grazing pressure. And, and that's been really difficult because, you know, about 50, about 60% of the grazing pressure has been unmanageable animals, goats and kangaroos. So, um, so initially when, I took over. Not I, I didn't just destock. I turned all the windmills off, all the man-made watering points, um, so that those kangaroos and goats had to go into the neighbours, uh, <laughs> which uh, which didn't really bother the neighbours as much as you might think, because they probably because I mean we at that point we just looked at kangaroos as something that you could do nothing about. Like it was just something that you had to put up with, um, and uh, you just didn't really think about them. Goats got a lot more attention. Um, certainly in the early years when they weren't worth any money, um, you know, they were certainly considered to be a problem. But uh, I would argue that's why we've never developed um, more appropriate grazing systems out here like rotational grazing because there's just no point. Like uh, there's no point in rotating animals around. I think I already said this. Um, your, your cattle around or sheep around if 60% of the grazing pressure is unmanaged. So... It's not like you can ask the kangaroos to follow the rotation with your cows. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't get the memo. Um, So that's why we've sort of uh, um, we've embraced the dingo as it came back into this landscape. We didn't reintroduce it. It's it's sort of been coming back, coming for the last sort of 20 years, well, 20 years up to the point where we saw our first dingo in about 2007. Um, But... Once, a bit, once again, going back to Bob Purvis, we went and looked at the Purvis property, um, you know, in, in North of Alice Springs, and then they came over here to, uh, you know, um, 
just spend a fair bit of time on Moulin and maybe other properties as well, having a look around. We drove Bob Bevis around for a couple of days and then we sort of said, oh, what What do you reckon, Bob? And uh, he said, oh, I don't know why anyone would ever sell the station. <laughs> so that was good. Uh, and then he said, what you need is a road train full of dingoes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd never seen a dingo in the wild at that point. So that didn't seem like particularly useful advice. But um, but a few years later, we did see our first dingo and the dingoes were coming back into this country and we decided not to not to sort of persecute them. Why uh, were they taken out of the country in the first place? So uh, because they had all the sheep. Um, so the last dingoes disappeared in this country about the 1940s. Um, but in order to get rid of them, uh, you know, Willene had a labour force of 60 or 70 people um, and mostly Wadri people and a lot of those Wadri people would have been um, either directly, you know, tasked or indirectly tasked, you know, opportunistically to get rid of dingoes um, and it still took them, you know, 60 years to get rid of the dingoes and, and you couldn't you couldn't ask for, you know, better people to you know, track and hunt down, you know, an animal than the Wadri people and they can track a low-flying cocky over granite. Um, so they were the perfect people to, to, to do that job, but it still took them 60 years and then they got rid of all the dingoes. And then they pushed the dingoes out to the edge of the desert and then, um, well, I would argue uh, that we, because the dingoes weren't there, you know, there was very high levels of unmanaged grazers and those unmanaged grazers did a lot of damage to the landscape. Uh, so the landscape became more degraded. Do you count that as, sorry, kangaroos or kangaroos and sheep? Kangaroos and goats are the unmanaged goats. grazers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we degraded the landscape. Also, the terms of trade changed for pastoralism. And then we got to the point where we are sort of today or 15 years ago where, you know, pastoralists, Stations don't have sixty or seventy people working on them. They've got two people working on them, and they're the two people that own and run the property. Um, and so they simply don't have the labour required to stop the dingoes from coming back. And so the dingoes started to come back into their former territory, and you know they'd eat people's sheep, and then people would change to cattle, and you know they couldn't control the dingoes before when they had sheep when it was imperative that they did so and then once they swapped to cattle well they're not going to put more effort in to control the dingoes now that they've got cattle because cat because dingoes are not anywhere near as big an issue for cattle um so essentially that just gave the dingoes a green light to go through that property and eat the next property's sheep uh you know that had been happening for 20 years before the dingoes arrived um at Woolene. That's a long answer to your question, isn't it? Yeah, but I, do, I think, again, I, I'm always thinking as, as I'm talking to someone, well, you and I know that, uh, and maybe many of our listeners, I still, again, hope that the point of this podcast is that some random person in London or Sydney or wherever will tune in and I want to make sure that everyone can come along on the journey with us and better to be safe than sorry and let's not assume that people have um, that lived experience or knowledge in that topic. So I appreciate the explanation. So it is certainly a different approach. Um, traditionally, yeah, dogs for the most part, uh, or dingoes, uh, well, and we'll get into this next bit, uh, you know, considered a, a pest 
uh, and are hunted, baited, shot at, whatnot. So, yeah, let's not beat around the bush here. Let's talk about wild dogs. Let's. Let's. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm happy, yeah, to, to ask the question. So, are dingoes and wild dogs, are they the same things or different things? Well, what do you reckon? I always thought they were two <laughs> different things. That mm. I always thought that wild, when people were talking about wild dogs, so I always thought that dingoes, yes, they'll eat things, but they're not as bad as wild dogs. And I always thought wild dogs were kind of like brumbies in that, um, you know, maybe a few farm dogs had escaped or and whatnot and had bred with, you know, kind of like how the brumbies are, you know, they just let them go from the stations and they didn't need them anymore or they're old war horses or whatever and then they just bred and rah-rah. I thought wild dogs were maybe like camp dogs, so like from Indigenous communities or, you know, old farm dogs that had just escaped or gone wandering or any any kind of dog and then they either bred within themselves or bred with dingoes and that that's what a wild dog was, kind of like a hybrid, I guess, and that dingoes were the orange ones that were just – and maybe – and that wild dogs, because they've got maybe like the, all the other breeds in them and stuff, they're a little bit more like vicious. I'm just thinking like, you know, maybe they crossed over with a pig dog or whatever. And, yeah, that's kind yeah. of how I'd always – how it's always kind of been explained. and Yeah, and that's the, that's the common misconception. Like those two terms, dingoes and wild dogs, conjure up very different mis- mental images in people's minds. Um which is why the term wild dog was adopted, you know, 20 years ago, uh, essentially to describe dingoes because, because when, when, when people are talking about wild dogs or killing wild dogs, what they're actually doing is killing dingoes. And, but the public who, who quite often fund those government activities to kill dingoes, they, they don't necessarily want to kill dingoes, but nobody likes a wild dog. So, you know, the, the, it's simply a change in the name, which happened about 20 years ago. And so under the Ag Department's classification of the term wild dog, it includes purebred dingoes. And so in, 20, in 2014, uh, they did a DNA study of 2,284 dogs killed under the name wild dog in Western Australia in that year, and they found that 59% of those animals were purebred dingo. And only 3% of those animals were less than 80% dingo. And if it's 80% dingo, that means it looks like a dingo, acts like a dingo, performs the ecological role of dingo, and is it's absolutely indistinguishable from a dingo unless you do a DNA test. So essentially, they're all dingoes. And, and, and that's not that hard to understand. Oh, no, I'll go back a bit. If it's living in the wild... It is either a purebred dingo or such a high percentage of a dingo that it makes no difference anyway um, because uh, if it's got low low percentage of dingoes, it simply won't be able to survive in the wild. It might be able to survive, you know, in a community or a mine site where there's lots of roadkill or down the town rubbish dump. So it's not to say that there are no, um, you know, hybrid dogs with a low percentage of dingo. But they're not really surviving in the wild. They're still surviving of people. And it's not so much the physiology of the animal, it's the social structure that the dingo has um, that allows it to survive in the wild. And in order to 
adhere to that social structure, you need a very high percentage of dingoes. It doesn't really matter what the physiology of the animal, it's that social structure that makes it able to survive in the wild, which is n- not that difficult to understand here because hay is a difficult um, you know, place to live for, for, for that sort of animal. But it's also true in Victoria where it's much easier. And while they do have in Victoria a lower percentage of purebred dingoes, about 28%, They've still, they've still, you know, the ones that are hybridised are still a very high percentage of dingo. The the, the hybridisations where they've got a low percentage of dingo, like lower than seventy five percent, just don't survive. So you don't see them. And so the last ten years of DNA study, they've they've tested over five thousand uh, animals Australia wide, and they've only found thirty one animals um, that had no dingo ancestry. 31 in, in the last 10 years they found, and they've only found 25 animals that le- that were less than 50% dingo. So, you know, even when they're a hybrid animal, they're a really high percentage of dingo if they're going to survive in the wild, which in my opinion makes the term wild dogs, you know, a complete myth because they're, they're really, you know, actual wild dogs as you imagine them when you, when you, when you say that, uh, when you say that term. You know, they really are, are so, are so rare. They practically don't exist. And it doesn't help that people see an animal that doesn't have that, um, you know, that traditional, you know, sandy golden color. Uh, they'll see something with, that's white with brown spots or something brindle. And it's very easy to say, well, that's, that's not a dingo. But, you know, the, 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 the recent and increasing, um, DNA evidence is that, uh, you know, brindle is a common color for dingoes, and in fact, the the type for a dingo. Oh, I haven't actually, I haven't actually, uh, I haven't actually researched this to make sure this is <laughs> this is true. But I'll, I'll tell a story anyway because I think it's. I reckon uh, it, the person that told me seemed like he would know. Um, the type for a dingo is not your sandy color. Like when they first got to Australia and they caught these dogs, and they're like sent them back to England. And it's like, this is this, this dog that's getting around. They're not your sandy colored dingo. They're like, they're like, well, I don't know exactly what, but, but they're, they're, you know, they're, they're white with brown spots. So that's the type for a dingo. Like it doesn't look anything like your picture postcard dingo would look like, but you know, dingoes can be jet black. Like that's, that's not that un- uncommon a, a, a color for dingoes. And really you can't tell whether something is a dingo or not by its color. It's impossible. So you are allowing, so you're, I suppose, actively not pursuing or hunting dingoes on Waleen to allow them to feel, fulfill their ecological role of hunting kangaroos and keeping their numbers in check to then, uh, so once the kangaroo numbers are in check, the grass numbers or quantity is kind of in check as well in balance. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't recover the landscape if you've got 60% of the grazing pressures, you know, remains there and, and is unmanaged. Um, so, um, it, having dingoes around is, in my opinion, essential for recovering the landscape, but it's also in, essential for managing it into the future with more appropriate forms of grazing, like ro- any sort of form of rotational grazing, because that, because the rotational grazing will not work if you've got high levels of unmanaged animals. So the dingoes is, is not just important for recovering the landscape initially. 
it's also going to be really important for managing it into the future. So while this school of thought can be divisive among the farming and pastoral community, you're certainly not the only one uh, kind of on this train. Um, I've spoken to a number of other pastoralists that see a role for dingoes in, in the ecosystem. I've just had a thought, though, how do you know what is a good – how do you find the right balance for the number of dingoes? So, um, I mean – Everything to an extent needs to be managed. So the kangaroo numbers need to be managed. The cattle numbers need to be managed. Um, so right now, dingoes, I suppose, are, are managed mostly as a, for the, the damage that's considered to be done in terms of predating on agricultural animals. But in, in Australia, we have wild horses, donkeys and camels. And those numbers, while, um, I'm sure there's some people that will want them all wiped out and there's other people that don't want them touched. But the argument for people saying, like, don't ever go shoot a Brumby, well, they need to be in manageable numbers, otherwise they will also degrade the landscape um, and also for their animal welfare. I mean, you only have to go and Google, you know, the history of – well, not history, but, you know, when there were like 7,000 horses on Lake Gregory or even now in the Territory there's times where um, the numbers are so big and, and horses are, and camels are getting into strife. Is there I, – I, I'm thinking that it would be logical that there is a appropriate number of dingoes to be able to play that role in the ecosystem and that there would be an opportunity that those numbers could get out of, um, you know, greater than what is uh, providing that benefit of keeping the, the, um, the kangaroos in check. So how do you find what is, where, what is a manageable number where they're doing good and playing their part or when – there's just, you know, I'm being extreme here, but plague proportions of them and, yeah, how do we find that balance? Yeah, and I think that's a fair assumption. And, and you know, I'm a land manager, so, you know, I, you know, I, would, I would tend towards that. But um, uh, so we, we got on national television to say that we thought dingoes were great. But before that, we went and visited a property that had been living with them for ages, just so that we, because we, you know, we, our experience with dingoes are not, you know, we only had 10 years of experience at that point. Um, so we're like, well, what happens at the end? You know, <laughs> the dingoes just going to wipe us out. Um, and overwhelmingly, people that, that, that have, you know, used dingoes, um, We'll say it's actually very important not to regulate their numbers because they're very good at regulating their own numbers. And, and the dingoes have, uh, like family groups, which, you know, you could also call packs, but pack makes you think they're like wolves and they're all getting around together with it, which they're not, but, uh, well, not normally. Um, but, uh, if you having st- stable family groups is really important to using dingoes to your advantage. And if you go in and you, kill the alpha male or the alpha female of that family group, then the whole pack, the pack structure breaks down and their territory that they would, that they would hold, um, also breaks down. And then, well, first of all, you've got more li- likelihood of hybridization because dingoes will kill, you know, our dogs here, like our, our you know, our, 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 our station dogs, you know, if, if the station dog is out and the thing and the dingoes find it in their territory, they'll, they'll kill it. But if there is no territory, they're much more likely to mate with it than kill it. Um, so, um, so for that reason, you don't really want to, um, disrupt those family packs. 
and also the family pack, which is the social aspect of what I was talking about before, what, what makes it possible for a dingo to survive out here. Um, that, 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 uh, the social structure of the family group, uh, is really important. And, and if everything's working well, they don't go for riskier prey, which is calves. Calves are a riskier prey. So if you leave them to their own devices, then they get their own food fairly easily and don't go for the, the, the riskier prey. There's some um, studies from Queensland where they've shown that if you bait, you actually get more calf losses because if you break down that pack structure, everybody's just trying to survive, which forces them to go for more risky prey, which is your calves. So we haven't had any evidence of any dingo predation on our calves whatsoever. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily achievable everywhere or even always achievable here. Um, but the rotational grazing really helps because you're moving your cows in and out of different dingoes territory. So they don't, you know, they don't, they don't even see calves as food. So. Uh, or, you know, as, as, as a good chance of, of getting a feed. Um, so, so they, they don't attack them. Um, and it also means that we keep moving our cattle onto good fresh pasture. So they don't have to walk far from the water in order to get food. Um, it's when you, it's when you're, in my opinion, it's when your cows are walking long distances in between the water and the food and they have a calf at that time. That's when your calves get eaten because your calves can't walk those long distances into the water and back out to the food. Uh, so they get left out in the paddock and the, and the, and the cow walks into the water and then goes back out to the calf. So the calf is alone or with a couple of other calves and one cow for that time, which, which, which makes them more vulnerable. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the worse the season, the more likely you are to get calf losses. Um, and also the more degraded your country, the more likely you are to get calf losses. Um, but yeah, the evidence, uh, to answer your question a bit more succinctly, the evidence would be you're much better off leaving them to their own devices. Cause if you kill the wrong ones, then you're actually, you, you, you're, 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 you're breaking down that family, um, structure. I'm just thinking on the fly here and I realized the other animals that I just, uh, said, you know, certainly need to be managed like uh, donkeys, camels and horses are all prey animals as well and the dingoes are predators. So that may, I'm sure on some level I need to go away and think about this, but I'm sure that aspect plays into it as well. Um, but that it's an interesting insight. So for, for let's say, so you're, you're allowing the dingoes to come under the premise that they will primarily be hunting kangaroos over your calves, but we've spoken off air about this beforehand. You do acknowledge that by having them around, you are um, expecting or accounting for, um, you know, some level of loss on your calves at some point in time. Like you don't expect them to never touch a calf and that's just something you that you accept and it's a part, part and parcel of the deal. So I suppose for that, that though is a um, – not sure that's exactly what I said. Oh, I think it was. That, no, like, no, that you going, don't, going into it. Like we not hoping for them to eat your calves, no, no, but you. Going into it, we certainly expected because this is what other people say. Like, you know, in a bad year, you might lose 5% of calves. But given that our cows, you know, only have to walk a couple of hundred metres to get to good feed because we, you know, we're usually moving them, you know, to good feed, um, uh, 
we haven't had any calf losses. And I think that that, uh, I think it, I think it's reasonable to assume that we haven't had any losses because usually before you'll get losses, you'll get scarring on your calves to show that dingoes are attacking them. They'll attack a few before they actually eat one, if you know what I mean. So the fact that we haven't seen any scarring whatsoever on our calves would, would suggest that we've probably not lost any either. So, and I think so long as we can continue to, um, uh, you know, safeguard those family groups and keep enough food on the ground for the cattle when we have cattle, I suspect that we won't lose any calves at all. I would think, though, that for anyone that, and so not just you, but anyone that allows a predator back into the ecosystem, it takes on some level of risk that they may predate on their livestock. Certainly at risk. So uh, sort of how – so I'm just thinking that that's probably a bit of a paradigm shift that would need to happen that people to get their head around that – And but, you're, but you know, the benefit of them controlling, primarily predating on uh, kangaroos and managing that grazing pressure outweighs the, the loss – the potential losses or minimal losses if it's all in balance. So it's kind of like, you know, Woolies uh, accounts for – a, you know, a, a certain level of shoplifting. I'm sure they do. I, I've been writing notes down as we're talking and I, I I've written that. down the word sharks and it kind of makes uh, – kind of part of our discussion has made me think about, you know, the shark debate, particularly us being in Western Australia and shark nets and hunting sharks and the people who say, well, if you swim in the ocean, that's where they live. Like, come on. Like, you, it would be great if we're not being eaten, but you're also going – so I'm also – I guess in a way I'm thinking along – kind of drawing on that with, you know, they, they were here and the kangaroos were here and we've come in so you kind of have to try and work with them and accept that there might be some negative things sometimes. I mean, if it got to the point where every person that stepped in the ocean got eaten by a shark, maybe maybe we change our tune. But Probably start eating more of them. Yeah, maybe. Ugh, I don't eat seafood. Um but does that? I don't know if that's just a little tangent that doesn't make sense and probably is we'll, like some we'll- logical fallacy, but – it's at the time it felt I was like I'm drawing connections. No, I, here. I think you're right. Like I think uh, good. Keep I talking think, like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you know it's re- it is reasonable to assume that you're going to get some level of predation on your calves, um, but uh, you know that that I think the highest recorded rate is like 15 percent of your calves, and that was during a terrible drought. Um, so. Uh, you know, and if you've got a terrible drive, <laughs> you probably shouldn't have had so many calves out there, uh, or possibly any cattle at all. Um, anyway, um, uh, so even at its highest recorded rate, uh, it's still probably, you're still probably better off than having the 60% of grazing pressure being unmanaged animals, uh, I would argue. Um, but, you know, a much more reasonable figure to accept to to um, to assume would be sort of five percent losses to to your calves, and, and you're going to get a lot more benefit out of the the you know the, the kangaroos that are not there than um, than the five percent losses. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're better off with them. While our discussion so far has been very um, specific- amicable. Yeah, well, <laughs> we got all our Barneys out of the way at breakfast time at six o'clock this morning. Um, 
while it's been very context specific to your story and your journey, I do believe that there are, you know, stories are universal and there are people that will be able to um, resonate with different parts of what we've spoken about, whether they have a specific interest in pastoralism or, or wild dogs, <laughs> dingoes, um, you know, or just the, the, the more universal theme. So I, I do want to ask you now, part, part of, um, parts of your journey or we call it or, um, what not is, I suppose we could call you a bit of a disruptor. And, and, and there's people in all, you know, like, um, what's his old, old mate? Peter Andrews is a bit of a disruptor or Alan Saver. If you're people who come in and, you know, Temple Grandin and whoever, Ooh. whether they're good or bad. Am I, am, I in, am I in that list? That's a, that's a nice, oh, that's a good list to be in. I don't know. Some people <laughs> may not say nice things about those people, but, but it's, uh, I guess people that come in and disrupt the existing way of thinking and start to, you know, uh, you know I like to, uh, well, I'm just disruptive. Period. Um, but with that comes, you know, pushback. Uh, and, and I, sh- <laughs> I was like, shall I, shall I put in some insurance? Yeah. I'm not saying that I agree with everything you do or that I, that we're publishing your opinions is not an endorsement. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, we're just so being, it is an endorsement. No, we're just being disruptive ourselves. <laughs> oh, you've got yourself in this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, can we go back? But, um, moving on, being a disruptor and, and, putting forth new ideas, uh, doing things differently comes with pushback and, you know, um, some, you know, pushback, blowback, whatever you want to call it. And at times I imagine this has been, uh, while, while there's a lot of support, um, I suppose it, I imagine it's been a somewhat of a lonely journey, obviously, uh, somewhat ameliorated by the fact that your wife is very, is side by side with you in what you do and as invested and as passionate, um, but it, you know, it's hard enough living in an isolated area, but to know, to be doing anything, whether you're in this area or another industry, any, any other context, to know that there are people that disagree with what you're doing and actively, you know, you know, it's hard. I, I imagine it would be hard to, it's just hard, I guess, in mm. many different ways. So can you talk to me a little bit about that and how you, are able to keep doing what you're doing, like it must get, it must wear you down and be hard. It's, yeah, I mean it's not, uh, it's not. Or am I being dramatic and making it sound like a lot more polarizing than it really is? Uh, I could have just invented this in my mind. No, no it's. Not. I'm going for the <laughs> no, dramatic. No, no, it's definitely. I mean, our, our views are generally not very popular in the in the Merchison community, um, but. You know, we've been, the merchant community has been struggling for, you know, economic, environmental, social uh, um, stability for, for a long time. Um, so I guess it's, 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 um, and I think that the merchant community is, uh, yeah, they're pretty, um, you know, they think outside the box. They've had to think outside the box in order to survive here. And while they don't necessarily agree with our views, no one's shooting us down. Um, you know, um, you know, it's not, it's not like they're, you know, howling us down at, in the street. You know, you can definitely. your house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's too far away. Are you uh, your mailbox off the main road? Uh, yeah. Um, so. You know, I think Merchison community has always been quite accommodating of different views. No, there's no doubt about that. Um, so, so I don't really feel like we, you know, 
there's definitely um, some level of uh, you know disparagement, but that's okay. It's, it's it's not it's not in any means, um, um, you know, affecting our um, our mental sort of health sort of thing. So, and we've also got a whole bunch of um, you know the people that come and stay here in part of the tourism business. You know, generally come and stay because they're interested in what we're doing, whether they agree with it or not. They're interested in it. So, we, we, you know, we have those pretty robust discussions all the time and, and generally they are certainly at the end of the discussion or the end of the tour. Um, they're almost entirely, um, um, you know, um, supportive of what we're doing. But when you said before... Um, <laughs> uh, you know the incredibly flush, frustrating bit is dealing with government departments <laughs> and banks. You know, not that that's so bad anymore, but um, you know, dealing with those institutions that just have really no, um, you know, the lands department, the act department, up until recently, um, you know, dealing with those institutions that really have no interest in helping. In anything progress, um, but once again, it also gets back to it gets back to that cultural stuff. And I think probably the thing that we're most derided for is the dingo thing. Um, and you know, I think that that's a that's mainly a cultural thing because everybody out here used to have sheep, and if you have sheep, dingoes are your worst enemy because they not only they kill your sheep, but they well the ones they don't kill they leave horribly maimed, which is Pretty traumatic for sheep. I mean, we had sheep for fifteen years. We know what that's like. Um, uh, so, so we, we you, we've got this pastoralists in general. I've got this cultural hatred of dingoes, um, and, and culture like that is very hard to change. Um, even if you're presented with a whole bunch of facts and you know figures that say you're better off with a dingo, that doesn't, you know, that's it's going to take a long time for that argument to actually change the culture. Um, and, you know, we recognise that, I guess. So, What would you say to anyone listening that is perhaps uh, either embarking or already on a similar journey but in a different context? So maybe they're, they're trying to launch a new idea or do something different in their niche, whether it's an agriculture or healthcare or hospitality or whatever, and, you know, are facing, you know, some of the similar struggles, what would your advice to them be? Yeah, so I knew you would ask this. And oh, actually, no, this isn't the last oh, question. Really? No, I've added this you, one in. Oh, really? Yeah. You've asked other people this as well. Oh, oh maybe I've got the question. No. Uh what is it? Uh, what would I tell them? Is that yeah? yeah like this is I switched a- off half through the question. I was like, oh, I know, I know what this question is. Yeah, no, I've well, not been that's the next question. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. I mean, the 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 obvious one is you know stick to your guns and do what do what um, do what you believe in. You know, stick to your values and beliefs. Um, yeah, I think that's important for everybody. I worried, like when when I sort of first took over, I was just starting embarking on this project. You know, you'd hear that um, everybody tells you that. You know, 
stick with it. You'll you'll get through, you know. Um, but it always struck me that nobody asked the people who failed, <laughs> you know, what what advice would you give? Uh, it is only there's only the people that are successful in whatever that actually that you hear from. So and they say, you know, stick with it, you'll get through. But they're the successful ones. No one's asking the people who failed in whatever it is they've been trying to achieve. You know, what would you tell people? And so maybe the other side of that is I've just read the well, I'll listen to the the, the resilience project. Um, and I'm going to get it wrong, but anyway, I think it's important to own the um, own your fail, not your failures, but own own the things that go wrong. Like realize that that is part of the process as well. Like not everything's going to go right. Like things are going to go wrong, uh, and that is part of the process. Like like own that and realize that that is part of the journey. The things that are going wrong. It's not just the successes that are the journey. It's also those, those things that go wrong that are part of that journey that make you into whatever it is, you know, where, so, and so whether you, whether you ultimately are successful or, or not, I think if you can really own when it doesn't go right, but you tried your hardest, then, you know, that's, um, you know, that's really important too. And for the long-awaited final question, David, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's like I, surely I could use my last answer. You can. No, you could have to repeat be, it then. It would be uh, dingoes bite. are not dogs. Bite. I mean, wild dogs are not dingoes. <laughs> no, that's my billboard. Um, it would be buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have Bitcoin? <laughs> Francis bought one. Oh, when, one. It was worth, when it was worth $80. One. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we are not a fine, just so everyone knows, we're not. Uh, we're not endorsing groups of cryptocurrency. No, we're not. We're not. Um, what do they call it when you, at the end of a finance podcast and they're like, this is our license number. Blah, blah, blah. We are not uh, able uh, to legally give financial advice. So I'm, well, you, we may, are, you may not be. Yeah. I'm not. T- no, please don't <laughs> buy bit- Bitcoin. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Real advice now. Um, um, so your lesson, your real lesson that you've taken away from everything. The whole of life is a lesson. Like it's not like I've learned the lesson. Like it's a, uh, um, you know, it's 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 ongoing. I think that, I think that the, I think that the thing that you learn is the experience that you get on the journey, and 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 it doesn't matter what your experience is. It, it does matter how you react to what the cards that you dealt. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm not sure that there are any lessons other than how you react to the experiences that you get. Now, there's only so much we can cover in two episodes. And as you would have picked up, all the topics that were discussed are incredibly complex and nuanced and everyone has different points of view. So if there's one thing I can recommend, it's just keep reading, keep looking, keep researching and find out as much as you can for yourself to develop your own point of view. I do highly recommend the book, The Waleen Way. It's a great read. Um, I've 
<laughs> still haven't quite finished it, but so far I have loved every bit that I have read. I promise it's on my list, guys. There's a lot going on. But, uh, you know, the book is great. And if you Google Willene, there's some um, really well-written articles out there uh, by newspapers. And also go and check out, you know, the points of view of everyone else out there, you know. Consume as much as you can, uh, I guess, expose yourself to as many different points of view and then come up with your own perspective on things. And I think that's something we should do, you know, with anything in life. So, yeah, definitely start with the book. And uh, I look forward to hearing from our listeners, you know, what they made of this episode and what their thoughts are. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.